Welcome to Legal Tea, the podcast where interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Heberg. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another week of the podcast. This week, we're sitting down with Charlotte Ebbett, an associate at RWK Goodman, specializing in racing and bloodstock law. In the episode, we discuss what racing and bloodstock law is, the impact of the Queen's death on the industry, and the globalization of the sport. Outside of racing, we discuss Charlotte's own journey into the legal profession, her choice to go to a regional firm over a city firm, and the importance of learning the lingo of the industry you're working in. So, Without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Charlotte. Welcome to Legal Tea. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks, Max. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, we've got a lot to talk about, but before we jump in, I was hoping you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Charlotte Ebert. I'm an associate at RWK Goodman. Um, I actually studied ancient history uh, at the University of Edinburgh a long time ago uh, and then decided to switch to law. So I did my um, GDL and LPC in London um, before then getting a training contract at what was then uh, Withy King in Oxford. Um, and I've been here ever since. And I sit in the sort of the commercial team really um, and specialize in racing and bloodstock law. So what is racing and bloodstock law in a nutshell? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, so it it isn't really a, a practice area. Um, it's more sort of the application of other areas of law to the racing industry or equestrian sport sort of more generally. And, and I say sport there because, you know, in many ways, um, a large chunk of the work that we do could, could be seen as a niche subset of sports law. Um, but, but we really see it as being sort of wider than that, as it's about you know, really supporting those individuals and stakeholders within the racing industry um, from a legal perspective. So whether that be through commercial contracts, employment, property work, disputes, personal injury, uh, private client, etc. It, it really crosses all of the sort of um, legal areas um, just focused within um, that particular industry. So just to clarify, when when we... When we talk about racing, and this might come from my American English, we're talking about kind of, you know, dog races or, or horse races rather than, say, you know, NASCAR or Formula One. Yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about horse racing, <laughs> specifically the, the thoroughbred world of horse racing. So, yeah, quite quite specific. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what is thoroughbred? So thoroughbred is a type of horse. Um, so a breed of horse and they're really the ones that are at the sort of the, the top flight of, of racing all right and so with the kind of application of of law into the racing industry would you consider yourself then kind of a specialist or, or a generalist in that sense I, I would say that I am a, a generalist 
first and foremost in that I'm a commercial lawyer. So I do general commercial work, non-contentious intellectual property, data protection, all those sorts of good things that a general commercial lawyer does. But within that, I have a specialism within racing and bloodstock. So um, that's a pretty niche area of law. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I, I'm not just limited to advising, you know, on the rules of racing or, you know, any, things within the racing world but I suppose that's a kind of um a specific string to my bow as it were um in terms of the work that I do oh fantastic and so you know her majesty the queen kind of was a great supporter of racing and horses I was wondering how has her death had an impact on on the industry overall well you know the late queen was uh, well documented for her love of racing and horses and you know understandably I think she'll be hugely missed within the sport um but she wasn't just a fan she was an important owner um had a huge breeding operation within the country um and I, I think at this stage it really remains to be seen what impact her death will have on on the sport you know um the, the king has um inherited her horses um but you know we're going to have to wait and see to see you know whether he'll maintain uh, the, the royal operation at the level it has been for you know the last however many years um, or whether he'll look to sort of wind that down um, because it's not you know perhaps his passion in the same way that it that it was his mother's so I think it's going to be a bit of a, a wait and see uh, on that one. And then when it comes to the international stage kind of to what extent is the sport of racing globalized or affected by foreign investment? Yeah sure so I mean Racing is a, is a is a global sport, and I, I think it's worth saying here that British racing is actually the UK's second largest sport. Lots of people probably don't don't realise that. Um, so so behind football, it's it's the second largest sport in the UK in terms of you know attendance, employment, revenue, um, and it generates billions of pounds, um, you know, for the British economy. Um, but globally speaking, um, racing is is everywhere i think you only need to look at the size of the crowds in um you know the us the kentucky derby australia melbourne cup um to see that it's you know popular on on on, on all sides of the of the globe and in recent years there's been a huge boom in the middle east um with massive prize money for for races over there and 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 that you know, causes an, a, an interesting dilemma, I think, for those involved in the racing industry in the UK. Um, that increasing competition means that getting foreign investment into the UK for the sport is perhaps harder than it has been before. It's being diluted. Um, and, and that foreign investment is really important in keeping the industry sort of healthy in, in the UK. I mean, I can only really look at it from a, a, a legal perspective, but you do see sort of ebbs and flows, you know, in terms of um, numbers at the sales, um, which is where horses are sort of bought and sold. Um, you know, that's where, really where you see sort of what the global market is doing in terms of investing in in, in UK bloodstock. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, it's one of those things that's going to be a, a continuing challenge to, to seek foreign investment and ensure that the, the UK racing industry um, maintains its position as sort of the best of the best. <laughs> <laughs> Got to maintain the gold standard. Exactly. 
just out of curiosity, how you know how expensive is kind of racing? You know, I, I imagine a lot of money goes into you know the breeding, the raising of horses. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not a cheap industry, <laughs> um, and I suppose you can look at it from a lot of different angles. So, you know, lots of people think that it is perhaps prohibitively expensive to be involved in the, in the racing industry, um, you know, to, to own a racehorse. And yes, the, the, the top horses are being sold for, for millions of pounds. And, you know, perhaps, you know, we're not we're not in a position to go out and buy, <laughs> buy one of, the, of those. But, you know, in recent years, there's been a huge drive not just in racing but in other equine sports such as eventing to um, open it up to to more participants we've seen a huge rise in syndications um, and racing clubs whereby multiple people can can own or be involved in a horse um, have the fun of going out to you know the races or other competitions um, see their horse win get to you know go into the 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 paddock or the winning enclosure um, and, and get that sort of the, th the thrill of, of being involved in racing. So there's a lot of work being done um, to sort of move it in that direction and, and, and wider participation. Now, I'm sorry, Charlotte, but I've got to play devil's advocate here for a minute. And <laughs> what would you say to kind of animal activists who would argue that, you know, equine kind of law or kind of racing as an industry as a whole, you know, maltreats the horses by enslaving them you know how, how does that compare to reality controversial topic then <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean i can only answer this from from my own experience and you know unfortunately as with you know many things there will there'll always be anomalies and there's you know little that any one person can can do about that um however i would say that the vast majority of racehorses are exceptionally well cared for. Um, it, you know, they are treated like top athletes, which, which they are. They are. They are athletes, and and in many cases, they're probably far more pampered than the humans that are looking after them, and have much better facilities, probably. Um, so, you know, I I think the, the vast majority are incredibly well cared for, and there's a real focus at the moment within racing on, on sort of what happens to horses after they retire from racing because unfortunately that can that can be the, the the point at which maybe some horses fall through the gaps or they go on to homes where you know people perhaps aren't best placed to look after them um so there's a real push on ensuring that um you know horses coming out of racing go on to lead happy and fulfilled lives and and have a second career where they can thrive um and, and I would say that, um, you know, aside from just the sort of the general welfare aspects, um, those people that are participating in racing, you know, have to adhere to certain welfare standards. Um, the British Horse Racing Authority, which is the independent governing body um, of, of British racing, you know, there's a whole set of rules uh, which participa participants um, need to adhere to um, and, and, and welfare is embedded within those rules. Um, so it, it's not something that, that just gets swept under the rug or, you know, that, that people don't care about it. It's hugely important. Um, and I think it, it, welfare and the sort of the view of racing within the eyes of the public is always going to be a topic of conversation 
And, and as a result of that, the rules are always going to be, be changing. We, we've seen recently um, changes to the use of the whip within racing, which has you know, always been a, a, a topic that sparks conversation <laughs> and, and people have differing views on, on the use of the whip. Um, you know, but but that that is going to continue, I think, you know, that the sport will evolve as all sports evolved and the rules will will move with it. Sometimes perhaps not as quickly as some people would like or in the direction that, that people would like, but but there's always going to be that that kind of conversation and, and, and change happening, I think. And so then describe kind of your role in this industry. As a lawyer, you were talking before about, you know, how a lawyer working in kind of racing and bloodstock law really takes kind of various areas of laws and applies them in this industry. Would you mind kind of, you know, talking us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, what I was saying earlier was really, it's not a, it's not like corporate law or private client law where you're simply doing that type of law. It's a bit of a mismatch of all different types of law. Um, and, you know, as with anything, you, you probably end up specialising in a certain area. And, um, you know, when I was training, I got to see it from various different angles. So whether it was, you know, on the, the personal injury side, so jockeys that may have, you know, had a catastrophic fall um, and then dealing with those uh, injuries that they'd suffered. Um, and, and, and now looking more at it from the commercial side. So, um you know, there's no sort of specific day-to-day um, -day type work, as you probably get told all the time and a bit of a cliche. But, you know, we, we work with a whole range of, of, of clients, whether it's jockeys, trainers, breeders, other stakeholders within the industry. Um, and I suppose my focus is on... Um, work such as drafting you know ownership agreements for racehorses um contracts for the sale of breeding rights in a stallion um so that might involve um taking tax advice from council or liaising with um lawyers in different jurisdictions um and it could also be things like um appealing decisions of the bha stewards you know that they've made in relation to the outcome of a race um, or other disciplinary um, issues at the, the BHA, or simply just advising on the application of the rules of racing. So even within sort of commercial, and I put within that regulatory work, it's quite broad. Um, but, you know, we've got colleagues that specialise in the, the property side of things. So, you know, buying, selling, leasing, large yards, um, gallops training areas um and then also advising on sort of the private client side of things and as i said personal injury employment um all assets really <laughs> <laughs> and do you have kind of you know out of all those different facets to to the industry and to the work is, yeah. is there one which you're particularly attracted to more well, I mean, I, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a commercial lawyer, so <laughs> I suppose that that's where I see my my skill set, as it were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do like being involved in those kind of high value um, deals in relation to um, famous often stallions or, or horses coming out of racing. That, that That's really interesting. And so what attracted you to equine law? <laughs> um, well, I've always loved horses. Um, Go figure. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I've ridden since I was a you know child, I still ride. Um, but I suppose I, I never really thought that I could combine that sort of interest and love of horses with the law um, until I came across um, this firm. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, I, I really think that, you know, if you're going to enter into a career, um, it's worth doing something that you're interested in, you know, that you're truly passionate about. And if you can combine, um, you know, a career with a passion, then that's really, really great. So, um, yeah, I guess that that's sort of what attracted me to trying to weave my way into to doing this kind of um, area of law. Just out of curiosity, when did you first discover that kind of equine law was something you could get into? Because, you know, to be honest, I only discovered this area of law a couple of months ago. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so it definitely wasn't something that I thought was kind of out there. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I was really thinking about, about doing law, converting to law and sort of researching firms and trying to think about the type of firm that I wanted to go to, you know, the, the type of law that I might possibly want to do. And I think at, at that stage, I really didn't have an understanding of the type of law that I really wanted to specialize specialize in it wasn't some you know I wasn't one of those people that had thought yes you know family law is for me I've got a burning desire to do that from, from the outset that you know that wasn't me I didn't really know sort of where I wanted to end up and it was only in sort of researching different law firms and seeing what they offered and then coming across you know what was then with the king and seeing that they had this specialism in in racing and bloodstock that I thought wow that that's really cool I can you know do law but also you know um specialize in an industry that really interests me and so do you have a kind of a highlight moment on the job so far I think there's probably two that spring to mind <laughs> <laughs> so um the, the first was being um involved in a in an anti-doping case um so a, a, a horse anti-doping case not a human anti-doping <laughs> case um whereby um a, a racehorse that was trained by one of our clients was found to have a prohibited substance in its system um yet it was you know completely unclear how that horse had come to test positive um, and if, if I were to try and explain it now, it would sound a bit like a Dick Francis novel. Um, there were so many twists and turns uh, uh, along the road. But it was a really interesting case um, to be involved in. And it ended up in the, the BHA actually changing the rules of racing um, to better reflect a scenario where um, a trainer who's the responsible person for the racehorse um, is not at fault. Um, so it it. it it was a long case, a really interesting case, and one that had, you know, actually a, an outcome that 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 ended up changing changing the rules. But, so that was um, a really good one to be involved in. Um, and then I think the other moment that that probably springs to mind is having Frankie Dottori uh, call me in the office and watching my colleagues' jaws drop as they realised who I was actually speaking to, um, and then. And sort of mouthing at me, stop Frankie Dottori. <laughs> um, so yeah, that 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 was pretty cool. Sorry, just that as, as a complete novice, who's Frankie Dottori? <laughs> so Frankie Dottori is one of the the sort of the most famous jockeys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must that must have been a highlight moment, definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, on the kind of anti-doping um, case, do you is there? Uh, 
in terms of doping, are there different kind of sets of, of, of drugs or, or, you know, techniques used to dope kind of horses as opposed to kind of humans? No, I mean, it, in, in terms of, um, <laughs> I suppose, the ways in which it might happen or, you, you know, can do it's, you know, I imagine it's 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 fairly similar. It's it's can be injections. It can be in food. Um, you know, so it can be embedding. Um, so it, there's various different ways in which a horse may come to have a prohibited substance in, within its system. Obviously, uh, I suppose the key, the key difference is the horse is not going to be knowingly taking it. <laughs> so there's always going to have to be <laughs> in, in terms of like the human athlete might decide to 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 take um, a certain substance. The horse isn't going to knowingly be taking it. Um, but in terms of how it might end up in their system, yeah, it's it, it, there are similar, you know, there's crossover, I guess, between between humans and horses. <laughs> and in terms of kind of going on to the second one with Frank Tory, you know, we've talked a lot about how the industry is getting you know, more globalized and more international. But at least kind of, you know, right now in the UK, you know, do you do you find is it a big pond? And so to speak, are there a lot of kind of law firms that, that offer kind of this specialism or practice area? Or do you find yourself being kind of one of the few kind of law firms that service this industry? Yeah, we, we are definitely one of one of the few. So there's there's very few firms that really specialize uh, in this type of work. Um, obviously, there's been a, a growth in firms that do general sports law. And as I said, sort of at the outset this could be seen as a sort of a, a subset of sports law but it, it's really quite um a specific area of law and um the industry itself you need quite a lot of knowledge of the industry it's a huge industry a bit like football law um and so um there aren't very many firms that really specialize in it you know i can i can think of you know on one hand, the number of firms that really have the sort of the true expertise um, in, in the UK. And how do you find it kind of, you know, the clients and themselves and also servicing, you know, the different almost stakeholders in the industry, you know, between, kind of, as you were saying before, between the jockeys, the trainers, kind of the owners, what's what's that like talking to different stakeholders? It's really interesting um, because I guess with, any client that you might have as a, as a lawyer, you need to be able to um, adapt your advice and your style to, to who you're talking to. Um, I think the interesting thing um, possibly about those within the racing industry, particularly jockeys and trainers, um, is that they have quite a particular schedule. <laughs> you know, that they're up, they're up early, um, you know, training in the morning, racing in the afternoon. So I suppose one of the challenges is fitting in talking to them <laughs> you know, need to get hold of someone um you've got to pick got to pick the right moment <laughs> um but I, I think what one of the the things i'd say to anyone who's interested in um getting into this, this type of work or the industry is um the important thing is to be credible and to be able to speak the language um you get found out quite quickly if you don't know one end of horse from another <laughs> um so <laughs> you know those within the industry expect you to know the industry um and and therefore it's important that you do and would you say kind of you know 
you're talking about the you talked about earlier the the evolution of the sport uh, as in you know like all sports do do you find that it's also an industry where things change kind of quickly or or, or more at a slower pace that's a good question and i would say it's probably on the slower side um because it has become such a big you know big industry um there can be in certain pockets of that industry a level of resistance to change and you know as with anything um so i i, I do think that um whilst it's constantly growing constantly evolving um real change is perhaps slower to to take place and you know it's like like the law generally you know <laughs> you know technology is moving apace and the laws are definitely not keeping up with it um i think that's probably you know the, the same with you know regulation within within racing you know you're, you're always one step behind because you're you're in many ways having to be reactive to, to what's happening so there's always going to be that that time lag there and so then transitioning to your kind of career journey what made you choose kind of a regional firm over a city firm because a lot of people you know the general perception is you know you you convert to law or you're kind of out of your law degree the idea is you go down to london you know big city big opportunities that's where all the development is that's where all the career is what made you say no like i i prefer was that kind of just by the the nature of of the industry that you were the specialism that you were interested in or were there other factors also influencing that so I think it's a bit of both. Um, so it, it's a really important point, actually, this, I think, for anyone who's, you know, an aspiring lawyer thinking about law, um, something really important to think about. Um, I, I knew from the outset that I didn't want to go to a city firm. I had seen friends of mine and peers go down that route. And, you know, while some really thrived, others burnt out quite quickly and just really didn't enjoy it. And for me, I always knew that sort of having a good work-life balance was in, was important, um, but also the you know the chance to get hands-on experience and, and real responsibility quite early on my early on in my career, and and not just to be a number. And so that's really why I I started looking at, at regional firms. And then you know it, it's easy to think just get a training contract. It doesn't matter where city regional <laughs> you know just just get the training contract. Um, but I'd say it is really important to think about the type of firm that you want to go to. And I was lucky in that I found a firm that did the type of work that I was really interested in and passionate about um, and, and was a, a, a really great fit for me. Um, and I think it's just thinking about, you know, where do you see yourself? What, what sort of work do you want to do? And, and I would say that um, people shouldn't dismiss a regional firm at the outset because, um, they do do really high quality and, and interesting work. You don't just have to go to to the city to, to get that kind of work. Um, and often you you get more opportunities earlier on in your career than you might do um, at a big city firm. Yeah, it's, it's some sometimes it's hard to believe that people don't know that there's more to England and the UK outside of London. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I wanted to kind of dig a bit deeper into the, the considerations between, say, a regional and, and city firm. You know, on the one hand, you talked about that there's more opportunity there. There's equally 
kind of exciting work and in, in, in the different blend and also more an opportunity to take ownership of, of the work that, that you're doing. But what other, yeah, what other kind of considerations, you know, if I were, if you were advising, say, somebody fresh out of law school, what would, what would be a good fit for someone going into a regional firm as opposed to a city firm? I think it, it comes back to what, what I said previously in that you need to get an idea of, of the culture of the firm and, you know, it, it, ultimately the type of work that they, they, they do, you know, are you happy to, you know, be working to all, all hours of the day and, you know, having a really demanding job, which, you know, granted, I imagine is incredibly interesting and fulfilling um, and and loads of opportunity and great exposure, um, but perhaps sacrificing, you know, other other areas of your life in order to do that. Or do you want, you know, a bit more of a balance? Um, you know, there is a, a difference in salary, <laughs> shall I say, <laughs> between a city firm and a, and a regional firm, but, but that comes with other benefits. Um, and it's a personal choice at the end of the day, and but I think it's one that shouldn't be ignored. But also, I'd say it it doesn't. In some ways, it also doesn't matter because you're not stuck in one place forever, <laughs> and there is there is always the ability to, to sort of change. And 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 I would say that when it comes also to you know choosing seats, choosing what area you, you qualify into to to a degree, you know. It's up to you to choose the path of your career um, and you're never set in stone. There's always an ability to, to change. So don't feel like because you're not perhaps getting the opportunities that you, that you want straight away, that's going to have an impact on you for the rest of your career. Um, it, it won't. And there's always the ability to sort of mould the career to, to sort of suit you. You know, I didn't go straight into um, specialising in, in racing law. I've sort of wound my way there um, slowly um but it's about being some persistent and and knowing ultimately where you want to end up and and, and what you want to to achieve and being patient about getting there that, sorry that's that was quite, a bit of a long-winded answer to that question <laughs> no 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 I, I i think it's also it raises a very important point because i always feel i don't know if it's specific to the legal industry or kind of now that the idea that You've got to kind of choose early on. You know, every moment feels like this is the choice that's going to change the rest of your life. You know, if I yeah. decide to specialize into this firm or kind of this department, then, you know, for the next 40 years, I'm there and there is nothing that's going to help me. You know, nothing I can do that's going to change that once it's been made. So that almost, yeah, the finality of it or the gravity. So it is refreshing to, you know, get that advice of, well, no, you know, you try one thing, you try it. And if it doesn't work out, you know, you can wiggle your way into another. And in the end, kind of down the line, you'll find what happens for you. And it, it takes that stress off and that pressure off of I've got to make the right decision. You know, I'm, I'm halfway through my training contract right now. And as I decide kind of my next seats, I'm kind of like, oh, well, which one do I choose? Do I choose this one? Do I choose that one? But if I don't choose this one, then like I'm foregoing all these other opportunities. And so, yeah, it's it's refreshing to hear that kind of like, no, you know, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, you know, you'll find a way to wiggle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it also goes sort of even back earlier than doing your tra training contract. You know, you don't have to study law. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can still become a lawyer even if you haven't haven't studied law. And there's ways and means and, and lots of people now are coming into the industry from 
from all sorts of different backgrounds and, and paths and you know it's not you know it's not just straight out of school uni into a law firm that that's the path there are so many different pathways now and and actually having other experience can be really really useful so moving back to kind of you know equine law and kind of racing and bloodstock law what skills make a good lawyer in this industry now i definitely know that terminology speaking the lingo is primordial but what other uh, what other skills would you recommend yeah, definitely being able to speak the lingo is, is a good one. Um, you know, I think you've got to have a passion for the industry. You know, that, that should be taken a, a, as read. And then really, I think it's the same as other areas of law. You've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be organised. You've got to have good client skills and be good at adapting your advice to each particular client. Um, you know, it's, it, it's all that general good stuff. Um, that, that, that you would have in any other sort of specialism um, but I you know you're right in that the main thing I think is actually being able to get on with those in the industry and, and talk their language um, because that's how you build trust um, and, and develop good relationships. And so what do you think is the biggest takeaway our listeners should take away from today's episode? <laughs> um, I, I think it's that one, there are um, niche areas of law out there. So if there's something that you're passionate about, you know, there's probably an area of law that specializes in it. You just need to go out and find it. <laughs> um, so don't be afraid to sort of be a bit bold and, and carve your own path. Um, if there's something that you're interested in, then, then go for it. Um, but also I think, you know, you don't have to necessarily take a traditional route into to a practice area or, or law more generally. Um, I was lucky in that I sort of found a firm early on in my career that did the type of work that I want to do, wanted to do. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Um, but it's not the end of the world if it doesn't happen straight away. Um, there are loads of different routes in, you know, try and get experience in the industry. You know, it, it doesn't matter how. All, all experience is useful. Um, so don't dismiss um, other work that you may have done or other experience that you have may have done. It, it, it will be helpful in the end. So Charlotte, we've talked race horses, we've talked legal career, we've talked the inspirational. Here and the Legal Tea podcast, we like to end things on a lighthearted note. Now, I've witnessed kind of your passion for racing. And I was wondering, you know, does this passion in the law also come from, say, a dramatised legal character in a TV or a movie? I don't think necessarily the sort of the racing and the legal um, elements overlap in terms <laughs> of a, 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 a sort of a favourite um, character or something. You know, I imagine lots of people say to you sort of L words or something like that <laughs> from, from, from Legally Blonde. I'm going to show my age here a little bit and say that actually probably Ali McBeal <laughs> was a bit of an inspiration purely because um, she was one of the sort of the first female legal characters that I really remember sort of on, on TV. And I just thought she was quite cool. So I'm, I'm going to say her. <laughs> no, no crossover to racing at all. <laughs> Well, talking about a crossover to racing, do you have a favourite, I, I don't know, that, forgive me for my lack of knowledge on the lingo, but who's your favourite stallion or, or jockey at the moment? Ooh, I think 
Diane, I think I'm going to have to go for Frankel. He was just Frankel. the most amazing racehorse, and it was a privilege to get to see him race on on several occasions. And yeah, I think it's got I think it's got to be Frankel. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. If any of our audience members have any follow up questions, can they reach out to you? And if so, how? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm happy for them to email me at charlotte.ebbert at rwkgoodman.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte. It's been a truly a pleasure. Thank you very much, Max. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoy learning about racing and bloodstock law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Charlotte. We've linked her LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Enjoying our exquisite brew? Have an act for social media marketing or podcast editing and are an avid tea drinker? Come work with us on Legal Tea. Send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk or DM us on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk for more information. Till next time.